Being a chef means keeping your cool in the kitchen. And with Resi Priority Notify and Global Dining Access through my Amex Platinum card, right this way, it's nice to try someone else's food for a change. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. What does every grocery store aisle now have in common? Products that come in paper packaging. And we don't just mean the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go paper-tarian than ever before. So why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out, the easiest choice for you. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Awards Watch says Liam Neeson is at his best. Don't miss In the Land of Saints and Sinners. Having left his dark past behind, retired hitman Finbar Murphy, played by Neeson, leads a quiet life in a remote coastal Irish town. But when a menacing crew of terrorists arrive, Finbar is drawn into a vicious game of cat and mouse, forcing him to choose between exposing his secret identity or defending his friends and neighbors. In the land of saints and sinners, from Samuel Goldwyn Films and Sony Pictures Home Entertainment. Watch it now on digital. Rated R. What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Golver with the Washington Post. I am joined on the other line by Michael the Pod Pina of SB Nation. Now, Michael, I have been waiting for this day for a while because we are inching closer to Sunday's premiere of The Last Dance, and that's ESPN's 10-part documentary series about the 1997-1998 Chicago Bulls and Michael Jordan, of course. And this is something that I have looked forward to. I was counting the days. And luckily, through the grace of God, I was able to get screeners, Michael, for the first eight episodes. And so this week, I dove in deep. I interviewed director Jason Hare. I interviewed an ESPN executive, Connor Schell. I interviewed SD Portnoy, a longtime uh, business uh, and, and uh, public relations executive for Michael Jordan, about the documentary how it came together, what it's all about. And if you would indulge me, Michael, I know we do a lot of MJ talk on this uh, on this podcast, but if you would indulge me, I think it's appropriate to do a full-length preview of this upcoming documentary, which I have a sneaking suspicion after seeing the first eight of 10 episodes. This is going to kind of dominate the sports landscape for the next month. What do you think? I'm, I mean, I'm so excited for this. When we were a few days into the NBA season being shut down, I tweeted, release the MJ doc, and I have been, like, sitting on the edge of my seat waiting, and I'm so jealous that you've seen eight episodes already. You are, you're going to have to guide us through this conversation. I, I'm, I'm, the anticipation is just killing me. So um, you were the one who actually got up, moved up, Michael. Uh, it was your tweet, um, and maybe <laughs> also LeBron James's comments on a, a podcast. No, here's the deal: they had planned this thing to be released in June, and the original plan from ESPN was they were going to air it on off dates of the NBA Finals. And I think that they were hoping that like Tuesday would be LeBron in the NBA Finals, Wednesday would be Mike. 
um, in the last dance, like Thursday would be LeBron in the NBA Finals, Friday would be Mike, and they would just own the entire uh, sports atmosphere for like two weeks straight and just have gigantic ratings and everybody would be doing the the Michael versus LeBron comparison. I think that was sort of what was in the back of their mind. Um, but of course, your tweet changed the whole game. And also, I think a few hundred other people were tweeting similar things. And they really had to scramble here, Michael, to pull this thing together. And episodes 9 and 10 are not officially done as of right now. Uh, they're not going to need to be done for another month until they uh, get up to air those. But that's the level of accelerated timeline they've been working on. But part of the issue here is it's just a massive, massive project. ESPN calls this sort of the biggest original content project they've ever been a part of. Uh, the director, Jason Hare, has been working on it for basically 25 or 26 months now, full time. They interviewed more than 100 people for the documentary, including Barack Obama and Bill Clinton. I think you might have heard of those guys. Um, <laughs> and they really you know, went through all angles, not only of that 97-98 season, but also of Jordan's career narrative and his arc, okay? And so a couple things to keep in mind. First of all, there are two stories going on in this documentary simultaneously. There's the, the final run for the championship, which obviously concludes with Jordan hitting the last shot um, you know, against the Utah Jazz, Brian Russell, kind of the brush off, the love tap to his butt that sends him flying, um, that iconic moment. <laughs> so they, they run through that season in uh, exquisite detail because they have access to NBA entertainment footage from behind the scenes that was captured by a, a camera crew all year long. So they're going, you know, back in the bowels of the arena with Jordan. He's flipping quarters with security guards to buy time. They're in practice huddles sometimes. They're in hotel rooms at various points with both Jordan uh, and Scottie Pippen. Uh, it's excellent access. So that's one of the stories. And of course, to tell that story, they're doing a lot of background information on guys like Phil Jackson, Scottie Pippen, uh, you know, Dennis Robin, Steve Kerr. Uh, even Jerry Krause, the general manager who kind of everyone hated, that's all taking place uh, in one area. Now, the other area is the typical biography of Jordan, right? And they go pretty deep. One thing I would say is if you know a lot about Jordan, there's not going to be any storylines that come out of nowhere to really surprise you. They stick to the hits, but what they do do is go a little bit deeper on everything. So you're going to get, you know, really fun video of Jordan on draft night. So it's like everybody knows about the Sam Bowie versus Jordan pick, right? But here's video of Jordan from the draft night. Everybody knows about Jordan's title winning shot at North Carolina. Well, here's him celebrating it and promising that he's going to bring, you know, two or three more titles to Carolina at the parade after they win that thing. I mean, they have just really, really good archival footage um, to, to supplement the behind the scenes stuff that nobody's ever seen before. And you ben, put it ben, all real quick, can I, can I jump in? Um, so you said that it's, you know, they're playing the hits and everything like that. And that's, that's awesome. I think the, the narrative of Jordan is, is well told and everyone who knows basketball knows his story and where he's come from. But what I'm more interested in, and maybe you can enlighten our listeners a little bit is uh, what makes this doc so highly anticipated is that we get a reflective Michael Jordan in these, in these extensive sit down interviews, which I'm sure you were about to, to mention, but like, that's the number one thing that I'm personally looking forward to in all of this, him really opening up, uh, uh, supposedly uh, talking about these things, correct? Absolutely. So what you get from Jordan is him trying to get the last word on everything. And so that was sort of the, the headline of my story and my preview. And people should go check it out. 
Um, but it's called The Last Dance because this was the sixth title run for the Bulls. But really, the takeaway from the whole project is Michael Jordan saying, you know what, I've t- been involved in controversies of various kinds for my entire career. I've been criticized for uh, various things throughout my career. I had rivalries with other superstars throughout my career. This is my chance to lay it all on the table. And I think what's really important for people to realize on this point This was not necessarily an ESPN documentary, okay? Jordan and his camp had access to this footage from the NBA, and the NBA had kind of been saying every single year, hey, are you guys interested in doing a documentary? Are you interested in doing something with this, right? And his hesitation, his reluctance, was that if all that behind-the-scenes footage came out without the proper context, he would look like a psycho and everyone would say, you're a bad guy, (laughs) right? So in recent years, this idea of the long-form sports documentary has really become more popular, especially in the last five years. And so it was actually Jordan's camp that hired the director, Jason Hare, and went through the whole process with him of how you're going to make these episodes come out, um, how are you going to tell the story, uh, what topics are going to sort of be brought up. And what Jordan said was, look, everything is on the table. There is nothing off limits. If you want to ask me about any of this stuff, I'm glad to answer and I'll be honest. And basically he told him on set one time, he was like, you know, ask me any question, I will tell you the truth. And, uh, you know, SD Portnoy kind of put it to me bluntly. She's like, this is not a puff piece. And you're going to get that right off the bat. Within the first 15 minutes of episode one, which airs on Sunday night, you're going to see Jordan just ruthlessly mocking Jerry Krause, the Bulls GM at the time, in front of his teammates and in front of the coaches after a Bulls practice where he's making fun of Krause's height, making fun of Krause's weight. No one is laughing besides Michael. He's just going in on him. And that's an example of why they needed to have the context. And so, of course, over the the course of this documentary, they go back and they ask Michael, well, what was the source of tension? And he lays it out in extreme detail about the problems that he had with Krause. Uh, you know, he, he thought that Krause wanted to take too much credit, that he didn't put the players first, that he was trying to rebuild the team too early while they were still trying to make title runs and everything else. So they really achieved their main goal of, of giving Jordan the platform to to give his side of the, uh, the story, but also to put his actions and so, frankly, at times, kind of tyrannical behavior in context. I'll give you another quick example of that. Everyone knows about the Steve Kerr fistfight at practice, right? Legendary fistfight where it's like, why is Michael picking on the littlest guy in practice punching him (laughs) he's his teammate this is like this is terrible leadership this is just bad human being behavior right like why didn't someone call the cops right that's sort of the the narrative around (laughs) that and you know Kerr the documentary uh presents it in a fascinating way because it gets Kerr's perspective he gets Michael's perspective uh it talks about kind of the bubbling controversy around it as that was happening and it also just talks about the supercharged atmosphere around that team in terms of the pressure, the scrutiny, the expectations, Jordan's philosophy of leadership and wanting to you know, test every single one of his teammates year after year after year. And so you really do get that incident in better context. And at the same time, you get Jordan confronted by a camera and there's nowhere for him to hide. And he has to be like, yeah, that was really not great. <laughs> I should not have beat up the littlest guy on the team. And so again, it's it's a scene that will stick with you. Um, and you will also, I think, while you're watching it, realize that he just couldn't help himself, right? He was just too competitive for his own good. And if it came to a situation where you know he was challenged in practice or he wasn't happy or whatever else, well, he might go ahead and swing on a teammate who was much smaller than him, and he, he might feel bad about it years later. 
but in the moment, like it was the only option for him. And I think that's one of the biggest takeaways from this piece is just the insane drive and competitiveness and will to win that we always associate with Jordan is sort of the main theme or through line, um, you know, throughout this entire documentary. Yeah, I think one of the speaking of themes, I think one of the things that really keeps Jordan uh, in our minds as this mythical figure is his need for confrontation. You know, the 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 legendary ways that he would create drama and create these slights in his head to to give him a competitive advantage over the competition. And so when you lay everything out in a 10 episode documentary, I mean, I'm sure it's just packed with those like you mentioned the Steve Kerr. Um, the Steve Kerr punch, the, uh, I mean, there's just countless examples. There's like Charles Barkley in the 93 finals. There's his, his battles with, uh, with Reggie Miller, his battles at Madison square garden, um, with the New York Knicks against Pat Riley and all those teams. Like there's just, there's a, like Isaiah Thomas and the Detroit Pistons, which is like the first real boss that he had to defeat on his way to becoming the greatest player who ever lived. Uh, I have a, a quick question for you. I have a few questions, but I'm going to, I'm going to lead with one. Um, how many episodes are, are dedicated to the first game of that 97, 98 season when the Bulls blew a 32, 12 first quarter lead to the Boston Celtics, Ben? Ooh, look at you getting a little spicy. Well, they do they do show the ring night um, celebration. So they do show that. I think they gloss over that result, though. That's interesting. Um, uh, here's one thing I want to go back to. You're mentioning Isaiah and everything else. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very clear all these years later from Michael that the fire still burns. He has not forgiven Isaiah for not shaking his hand. <laughs> he is still so mad that the Pistons did not shake their hand in the ni- after the 1991 Eastern Conference Finals, and he goes in on Isaiah. And he also explains that celebrating that Eastern Conference Finals win for the team was better almost than winning the finals. Uh, I mean, they felt like that was their championship. And there's footage of them on the airplane, you know, cracking drinks and you know, high-fiving as if they've won the title before they've even played the finals against the Lakers, which is just amazing. Um, and it just shows you how hard he was trying to get over that hump that you were describing. But he was also just so uh, personally flabbergasted by comparisons to Clyde Drexler. So do you remember that that time period where people were trying to elevate Clyde and say, oh, he's on Michael's level in 92 finals. Everybody wanted to do the head-to-head showdown thing. And um, Jordan just describes being just mortified by those comparisons. And just like, it just bothered him deeply that anyone would think that Drexler <laughs> so was, was on his level. <laughs> so he like walks the viewer through the six three-pointers uh, against the Blazers. And he's basically saying like, I was punishing Drexler for even being in comparisons to me, you know, of course, you know, Clyde's not saying that, you know, it's just other people saying that about him, but he was so offended by it. It was like all six of those three pointers were basically to dead that, that argument forever. Uh, another scene, and this is a great technique that I know people who watch this are going to love Michael. They actually use technology to kind of facilitate collaborative interviews. So they'll, they'll show Michael on occasion, an iPad, with other people talking about him or other people telling stories so they can film his real-time reaction. So in a lighter moment, they they have his mother 
reading a letter that Mike sent uh, when he was at college asking for money and, and asking for her to send some stamps. And he gets very embarrassed and kind of shy because, you know, he was a poor college kid who had to ask his mom for stamps. And mm-hmm. you get his, his genuine reaction of that. But they use it to even more devastating effect with Gary Payton because they get Gary Payton doing one of his classic things where he's saying, you know, if I could have guarded Michael Jordan more in the 96 finals, the Sonics wouldn't have lost the same way we did. You know, George Carl kind of ruined things from a strategic standpoint. And they show Jordan footage of Gary Payton basically trash talking or trying to rewrite the history of the 96 finals. Mm -hmm. And Jordan cannot control (laughs) his laughter. He just starts cracking up just completely genuinely as he's watching it. And at the end, he just just completely dismisses Gary Payton. He's like, the glove? I was never worried about the glove. (laughs) Like It's just you get the same trash talking stuff that you were describing or, or the same rivalry stuff. It's still there within the competitive edge is still there. And the documentary does just a fantastic job of of showing who he is now. Uh, and again, letting him get the last word on some of these things uh, that maybe have been lingering. Um, and just real quick, too, it's not just about the on-court stuff. You know, they really try to dive into some to trickier territory. Uh, there's a lot of allegations about his gambling. Did that have an impact on his father's death? Um, they di- they dive into that. They get Jordan's story on that. Uh, a lot of people were upset with Jordan's apolitical stances publicly. You know, the Republicans buy sneakers too stuff. Jordan mm-hmm. addresses that head on. Uh, you know, he answers those questions. And then another thing that I really was not expecting was Jordan talking about his childhood in North Carolina and the sensation of the racism that he felt and just kind of experienced as a young child. And it wasn't necessarily like one incident where he was called a name or something like that, but it was just the environment um, that that he was surrounded by that actually he describes as being a motivating factor for him to kind of get out or get away or, you know, try to play professional sports or just do something with his life uh, so that he could, you know, have a, a better life for himself and for his family that I had never really heard him discuss quite in that same way. Um, And so again, there's some really meaty stuff here that I think is going to have a a wider general audience than just basketball nerds, uh, because you have uh, a guy who, as Oprah Winfrey describes in one scene, is the most famous person in the world. And as a, a newspaper headline in France declares that he's bigger than the Pope, you have that guy weighing in on a lot of you know, very personal and intimate details in just ways he's never done before. Yeah, all this is so fascinating. I mean, it's almost like 10 hours or 10 episodes is not enough. Uh, like, I, I, oh man, I cannot wait to watch this. Um, I feel like, you know, obviously MJ is the, the, the central figure in the documentary series and everyone is interested in his reaction to uh, slights from the past and and scenarios from the past and his thoughts on things. But I was just wondering from what you've seen, who would you say is, I guess, like the, the, like (laughs) the sidekick in the documentary? Like who is the number two critical figure? Yeah. Like, I mean, there's so many legends and icons in this thing. You've got, I would imagine, I mean, I've seen clips of Dennis Rodman and participate, Scotty Pippen, Phil Jackson, I think. I mean, you mentioned Steve Kerr, Ron Harper, Tony Kukoc. I mean, there's just so many guys that are uh, awesome and, and not only great players, but really interesting figures and um, eloquent speakers. And they have a lot of really interesting things to say. So who would, yeah, who would you say is kind of like the supporting 
actor, best supporting actor in this thing. Well, so first of all, the one condition that Michael had for the director, uh, the director told me, was that it needed to be a story about the whole team, not just a biography, right? And they did they did manage to to fulfill that mandate from Jordan by using all those different guys that you mentioned as various entry points. So it's almost like there's a Pippin episode and a Phil Jackson episode and a Steve Kerr episode and a Dennis Rodman episode. And they really dig into those guys more deeply. How did they get to the Bulls? What were their upbringings like? You know, how did they make their name? I would say of all of them, you know, it's not a great surprise that Scottie Pippen is probably the number two guy here. There's some amazing footage from him as a high school and college player from small town Arkansas, and they actually go back to Arkansas uh, and you know kind of show where he grew up and describe his family situation. That's very poignant, and it'll give you a lot of respect for Scottie Pippen. It's just like, how did this guy possibly make it? Um, and his footage when he's really discovering how to play the game, and he's um, at I think Central Arkansas, and just like you know, his limbs are seemingly growing as he's running down the court and he's dunking and. He's finally kind of getting into his body and understanding his athleticism is just amazing. Um, But also, there was real drama going on with him and his career during that 97-98 season. He was drastically underpaid at that time. Uh, He wanted a new contract. It it really didn't come. Kraus was worried that Pippen was going to leave um, you know, because of the money situation down the road. And so he was actually considering potentially trading Scotty. And so Scotty kind of gets back at the boss, so to speak, by delaying a foot surgery that costs him multiple months at the start of the 97, 98 season. So he's not, he didn't, part- yeah, he, he didn't make his debut until January. I looked it Correct. up right before we recorded. That's crazy. Correct. And so he's not there for the preseason. Um, when they go to Paris, he's not playing in that game. Uh, he is not in the in the opening night game that you're describing. You know, he's at the ring night getting his ring, but he's in a suit. And you know, Jordan's kind of single handedly keeping them afloat during that season after he's you know kind of already been exhausted and um, you know getting up there in age as well. So it was a, a difficult situation for Jordan to be put in. And Jordan discusses that about how he feels a little bit let down by Scotty's decision on the surgery. And then to to make matters even more complicated, while he's out due to injury, Scotty requests a trade because he's so mad at the front office. And so they have to kind of, you know, Phil Jackson and Jordan have to kind of bring Scotty back in the fold, make him feel uh, like a, you know, still loved member of the family and everything else. I mean, it's just crazy to think about. Like we've seen some of these Cleveland Cavaliers teams more recently have a lot of drama, but we never had Kyrie Irving in the middle of a season, you know, go public with a trade request because he hates, uh, you know, David Griffin, you know, back in like 2016. I mean, they had some really tricky situations, but at least they managed to keep it mostly in house and things would kind of trickle out here and there. Um, So to imagine the Pippen experience occurring in the modern NBA landscape is just kind of crazy to think about. And and we also have to keep in mind, I mean, these guys were the biggest team in pro sports, basically, at that point. So Mm -hmm. everything was magnified. So I would say he he gets that number two role, uh, in part because he was pretty open in his interviews, too, and in part just because they had a lot of behind-the-scenes footage of him. Um, But uh, they don't go short on Rodman. I mean, they've got Rodman partying in Vegas with Carmen Electra during the season, Um, you know. They've got Phil Jackson musing about, uh, you know, his motivational tactics, trying to keep the team together and on the same page. Um, I mean, they they really bring in all the supporting characters. And the last point on that, 
they don't overlook the role players either, Michael. Uh, I don't know if you remember Scotty Burrell. I mean, I barely remembered him. But for whatever reason, during that 97-98 season, he was Jordan's pet project. Jordan just thought the guy was too nice and too friendly and not competitive enough. So he is shown throughout this series just kind of berating Scotty Burrell. In the very first <laughs> in the first episode, uh, they win this quote-unquote championship in Paris, this preseason exhibition, because Jordan just torches all these European players who have no hope of stopping him. And Scotty Pippen and Ron Harper are hugging on the bench because they're going to win this championship. And Scotty Burrell asks Jordan for a hug. And Jordan shoots him a death glare that's basically just like, never, ever say anything like that to me ever again. Like, this is a preseason game. It doesn't matter. Like, And, <laughs> and Burrell is like, well, maybe I'll just ask your kids for a hug then because you won't give me one. He's like genuinely kind of hurt. And he's just like such a personality uh, contrast. But all season long, there's footage from the from Jordan just ragging on Burrell at practice, um, making fun of him on the team plane. And uh, I think that it winds up being a vehicle for the director to show how demanding Jordan was on all of his teammates kind of throughout his career. And, you know, Burrell and, and his relationship winds up just kind of serving that purpose of like, look, you know, playing on Jordan's team had its benefits because you would win titles. But there was also, you know, a significant personal cost to all these guys for playing with him. And one other just really memorable scene real quick was Will Perdue saying that, you know, after they won the 91 finals, so the first title uh, that they, these guys had ever won, and, and they had been together for years, uh, Will Perdue says and tells the camera in his interview, I, didn't, I thought Jordan didn't have feelings. The only thing we'd only ever seen him frustrated and mad and trying to win and not being able to get over the hump. So when he's like crying in the locker room with the trophy, uh, Will Purdue says the whole team was just stunned because they thought he wasn't a human being, like that he didn't have any emotions. <laughs> it's like when he says that on camera, it will make your skin stand. I mean, it will make you goosebumps, your, you know, everything. I mean, your hair will stand up on end because it's clear that these guys were basically living in fear of him for like five or six years and they finally got it done together. And it was like, oh, now we actually get to see he is a real person. And I mean, it's things like that that just add to the legend. And I think that's sort of, uh, you know, part of what uh, this documentary is about, too. I mean, there's definitely some myth making going on. Yeah, this question, I don't think anyone alive can answer it, although some have attempted. But if you were to take this, these Chicago Bulls teams, both, I guess, both repeats, but more... I think the second one, for different reasons, is is more relevant to the question. But if you were to take those teams and put them in the social media era, do you think they would have survived? Because I just I I, I don't see it. I mean, Steve Kerr's talked about it and talked about the when he was with the Warriors. Uh, well, he is with the Warriors, but during the the magical season when uh, you know fans were showing up beforehand to watch Steph Curry warm up, and it was basically a traveling rock show. Um, uh, how just eventually overwhelming and stressful that became and, and how it, it compared, he compared it to his life as a player with the Bulls, but like, it, it's just a completely different world. So do you think like specifically pertaining to, I mean, there's Rodman, of course, but then there's also who would just like in the social media era, Instagram live and all that, like, I don't think Rodman would survive, but um, Scottie Pippen, as you mentioned, like him, him requesting a trade and there's all these different moments throughout his time with the Bulls that I, I it easily just could have disintegrated or imploded, like at a, at a moment's notice with a tweet or something like that. Do you think they would have hung on and, and been able to win three straight? 
It's a great question. I think, first of all, they don't go 6-0 and in the finals if they had to face that level of scrutiny. I mean, that's number one. I think that just somewhere along the way, something would have gone wrong. And I think that's a major underlying theme from this documentary is that don't assume all these things were bound to happen, right? Like just that they were guaranteed or like inevitably going to win all these titles. Uh, I think that would be, you know, completely a mistake. I mean, you could see how tenuous it was at various points of their dynasty where things really could have fallen apart. So I think that's number one. Number two, though, this is a point the director made to me. Michael wouldn't have been on social media if he was playing today. Uh, He says that, you know, it was very clear to him that Michael was consumed by competition, so much so that when the director would go to his to interview him, he would have little games or little competitions that he would build into his questions just <laughs> to make sure to keep Jordan engaged because he knew that's how he would get the best material out of him. Um, so, you know, that I think that kind of says it all, right? It's like, I mean, maybe he would have had a, a you know, a basic Twitter page, sort of like Kobe's Twitter page when he first got it, where you know, it's not really being used that much, but it's just kind of there so people can follow him. Um, but I don't think that he personally would have been that kind of consumed by it. But yeah, I mean, Rodman's antics are insane. I mean, Phil Jackson let Rodman go on a 48-hour bender during the middle of the season with permission to Vegas. And he didn't show back up on time. And the team basically had to go get him. <laughs> like, can you imagine that during the Twitter yeah, era? Yeah, that's not, that's not going to fly. No. <laughs> right. And there's footage of Rodman, and they show this. There's footage of Rodman dancing without his pants on at a Las Vegas, uh, I don't know if it's a casino or a club or whatever, uh, like on stage with Carmen Electra. Like that footage would have been everywhere. Sports Center, you know, every other, uh, you know, Bleacher Report, House of Highlights. I mean, they all would have had that stuff if that had happened today, right? So um, they were definitely of a different era. There's kind of no way around that. But at the same time, you also get the sense that like Jordan is pulling these guys through almost anything that was coming their way and be through both his will, but also his just skill level. Right. And I think that you really, you get that at various points. Like for example, uh, when they lost the Orlando magic, and we talked about that series, how it kind of gets forgotten to history uh, Mm -hmm. when Jordan comes back from baseball and Nick Anderson makes an offhanded comment that number 45 is not number 23 uh, because he was able to kind of steal the ball from him late in that series when they win Jordan was so personally offended by that comment that he basically used it as fuel the entire offseason and then heading into the next season. And what do you know? They win 72 games the following year, right? So it's like that <laughs> that one little thing was just like the motivation that he needed to get himself back into peak basketball condition after being away playing baseball and to get himself back into like peak kill mode. And he had been searching for something to kind of drive him. Uh, that's why in, in part that he retired after the three titles because it was kind of like nothing left to prove. And here's this guy trying to say, oh, you know, Jordan's not the same guy anymore. And his response is to that point, the the best season in NBA history, right? So I think that um, we don't need to go too far in overdoing this idea that like the Bulls wouldn't have been able to survive because I think that Michael was such an effective leader and player that he would have been able to handle an awful lot of stuff that was thrown their way. Yeah, I mean, he's the he's a perfectionist perfectionist. But I do think that if, uh, if, if Michael Jordan did play now and did have access to Twitter... I, I like to imagine that he's subtweeting the competition. You know, like LeBron is posting TikTok dance videos with him and his family, and you get like 
MJ alluding to it in a, in a, in a prickly tweet, like emoji filled. I could, I could see Michael doing that to try to use social media to get that competitive advantage and get inside the head of his opponents. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. The wait is over. The shy is back on Paramount Plus, and the stakes have never been higher. Everything changes on the South Side when a new threat comes to power in the Showtime original series from Emmy winner Lena Waithe. Battle lines will be drawn, alliances will shift, and danger lies around every corner, leaving everyone to wonder who they can trust. Visit ParamountPlus.com slash shot to get a 50% discount off the Paramount Plus with Showtime annual plan. Offer ends July 14th. Subscription auto-renews. Restrictions apply. Awards Watch says Liam Neeson is at his best. Don't miss In the Land of Saints and Sinners. Having left his dark past behind, retired hitman Finbar Murphy, played by Neeson, leads a quiet life in a remote coastal Irish town. But when a menacing crew of terrorists arrive, Finbar is drawn into a vicious game of cat and mouse, forcing him to choose between exposing his secret identity or defending his friends and neighbors. In the Land of Saints and Sinners, from Samuel Goldwyn Films and Sony Pictures Home Entertainment. Watch it now on digital. Rated R. Ben, I have one last question for you, and it's it's kind of... It's kind of specific and really hones in on a time in Jordan's career that I'm sure maybe he would like to forget, and I'm sure Chicago Bulls fans would also like to forget. But how deep do they go on his his uh, his exploration into baseball? They have uh, a pretty thorough retelling, uh, again, with some crazy footage and some details that I didn't even remember. So just so you know, Michael, I actually went to Birmingham as part of a little road trip vacation a few years ago. And I tracked down the Birmingham Barons uh, marketing people. And I was like, look, you know, ostensibly like I'm a reporter, but really I'm just a, a Jordan nerd. Like, and so I was just like, what can you do for me? And they were, it was the off season. They were so kind down there, Michael. They opened up the team store for me. They gave me a tour of their new stadium. It actually wasn't the stadium that Jordan had played in. And they had multiple, like, pretty big-time Major League Baseball players play for the Barons over the years, but they still had a poster of Jordan that was, like, 10 times bigger than every other player poster they had at the new arena. Uh, oh, sorry, as they the, should. The new ballpark um, just to, like, yeah. you know, uh, uh, to pay honor to him, which I loved. And I guess they were having, like, the 25th anniversary season coming up, so they were going to do certain retro jerseys to honor him. I mean, it was just, like, an MJ fan's dream. Um, but what I didn't realize, they put him in double A because the lower levels of the minor leagues didn't have the capacity to handle the crowds and the media that was going to attend. Because there was like national media members for a while following him around, 
playing minor league baseball, right? So I guess like theoretically, you know, our jobs, like if LeBron went to go play like minor league football right now, like some of us in the NBA media would be conscripted to go follow that, you know, kind of no matter where it would be. Mm -hmm. And that really happened for a lot of people because everybody was so stunned by it. So they do a great job of setting up his retirement of a lot of uh, footage that I hadn't seen around that and just the chaotic environment and how it first came out. They do a, a nice job of explaining his motivations, and I don't want to spoil too much there, but it had to do in part with his father, of course. Mm -hmm. And then they show him uh, and how he's greeted down in Birmingham, which is crazy. And then they also point out that he started the season on like a 13-game hitting streak after not playing baseball for basically 15 years of his life, which is just insane. Like, how would anyone be able to do that? I don't know if you've ever tried to hit a curveball. Um, but I certainly, I mean, my career was over as soon as the pitchers could throw curves. And, um, I guess that was also Michael's undoing is they, they scouted him, realized that just don't throw him fastballs because he'll, he'll hit those opposite field singles and, uh, throw him some curves and he'll just strike out swinging. And, and that's sort of, uh, what wound up happening, but they, they describe, um, you know, what life was like on the road for him as a baseball player. Uh, they also show the backlash uh, of the famous Sports Illustrated cover that upset Michael with the Bagot Michael headline. Um, they show that as well. So they, they get into it quite a bit. And of course, they focus, I think, uh, a little bit more on the excitement around his return from baseball as well, of course, because you know people were kind of counting down anxiously and he was teasing people that he might come back and, and he got back just in time uh, for that playoff run. I think that that whole... Like I'm not, I'm personally not super interested in his time in baseball and that sabbatical, but I think it's underrated just how insane it really was. And it, there's really no comparison for anything in the modern, modern times. I can't think of anything. It, like you said, LeBron deciding to suddenly play football would be not even as 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 wild i think if this if it were to happen and announced tomorrow it would be really wild but for michael to do this like in his prime it it's just it boggles it it still boggles the mind oh it really does i mean stern david stern shows up at the press conference for jordan's retirement and you just think he's there like kind of hoping that michael will change his mind <laughs> like on, on the spot it's just like hey maybe if i sit here i can like coax him into not doing this you know um it's crazy and also just because I mean, his father was murdered right in the middle of his prime too. And his father would attend games constantly with Jordan. Like he was a regular presence behind uh, behind the scenes at Bulls games. And I mean, that whole adds a whole nother layer to it of just this idea of like, I mean, this guy's just personal story was crazy. And there's so many layers to it. And I think a lot of those memories and, and sort of the nostalgia factor for people who grew up, uh, you know, remembering kind of touch points in Michael's career, uh, but, you know, again, getting the opportunity to go a little bit deeper on every single one of these subjects and getting to hear from him on all these subjects, uh, it's a really rewarding viewership experience. So everyone, I highly recommend check it out. You know, if if it came up short, I would tell you it came up short, but it didn't. They did this thing the right way. All right, Michael, I think that would be enough of flagellating uh, Michael Jordan here. Let's uh, let's consider shifting gears. I know you guys at SB Nation were working on a big project basically all week, right? Um, it's called Titleist, correct? Correct, yes. And you're running through the greatest or most memorable or most uh, forlorn teams never to win an NBA championship. So obviously this ties in pretty carefully with or pretty closely with what we're just describing because 
Jordan left an awful long list of guys who never won titles uh, in his wake, whether it's Barkley, Stockton, Malone, Ewing, and so forth. Uh, so, you know, during this, I guess, lay out the project for me and what was your biggest takeaway from participating in it? Yeah, so, I mean, it's basically, it was, it's uh, my colleague, Mike Prada's baby, uh, SB Nation writer, Mike Prada, and he did probably like 99% of the work on it. I mean, he wrote all the blurbs, he came up with the concept, and I, I think it's just, it's so fascinating because, I mean, it explains itself. Uh, you know, who, which are the it's a, it's a 64 team bracket that is attempting to decide which is the best team in NBA history that did not win the championship. And they're separated in different categories. The categories are uh, flame outs, overachievers, not good enough and what might have been. And there's been a lot of uh, interaction with this project because I think every fan base, I mean, not every fan gets to root for the Lakers or Michael Jordan's Bulls or the San Antonio Spurs or the Boston Celtics. Uh, so there's a lot of just heartbreak out there. Uh, and so this is just an opportunity for fans of the other, uh, I guess, 20 plus teams and organizations that have either never won a championship or haven't won in, in forever to appreciate their uh, their most memorable teams. And so, you know, Mike did a really wonderful job of kind of combing through history and finding the, the best team from every era. And it's a little subjective in trying to define uh, what when, when an era begins and when an era ends, but I think he did a really good job with it. And it's just an awesome, uh, massive undertaking. And I think anyone who likes NBA basketball will fall in love with it immediately. Well, yeah, it's the kind of project where the memories come flooding back pretty quickly. Like I know for Blazers fans, the 92 team that lost in the finals to Jordan is definitely would make this kind of a list, but also the 91 team where they wind up going out in the Western Conference finals to the Lakers is always sort of like the one that got away. I mean, that team was so talented, so good during the regular season, operating on all cylinders and just couldn't quite get over the hump. Um, I'm sure, you know, the Celtics, the injury issues that, that you, that you've described, uh, during the KG era, derailing some really, really impressive seasons. I imagine they probably find their way on the list. Was there one team that kind of stuck out to you, uh, more than any other, Michael, when you were going through this process, or was there a team that you wrote about, um, that really like hit you in the gut? Like, man, like these guys, what could have been for these guys, you know? <laughs> Well, so real quick, one of the rules and, and the criteria of the list was that you could not, in the same era, win a championship and be considered. So, the, for example, the 2009 Boston Celtics would not be uh, uh, eligible for this exercise, and a team like the uh, 2016 Golden State Warriors, which I think, if we're being honest, like that that would that team would just run through this bracket. Um, they're not eligible because they they won a title in the years before the year before and the year after. Um, so I mean, for me, like it sparked that idea of what you're talking about. And I I when I was pitching teams to Mike, uh, he let me know that the 2009 Celtics would not be allowed. And so I wrote my own column that was basically uh, you know the the five saddest uh, title defenses of the past 20 years earlier this week on SB Nation, and and I, I included <laughs> the 2009. 
uh, Boston Celtics. Uh, I love it. So Mike does a week-long project with very explicit rules, and because the 2009 Celtics <laughs> get snubbed by those rules, you have to go and write your own column defending their honor. Honestly, Basically. though, like I, I understand his criteria for sure, but I think there's something to what you did because I think sometimes this idea that you're denied a dynasty, right, or you're denied the potential for a back-to-back, like that can carry even more weight. I mean, that 2016 title for the the Cavs over the Warriors legitimately spoiled the Warriors' entire story. Like, they're going to be remembered very, very well, but I don't think that they're remembered over the Showtime Lakers right now. I don't think they're remembered over the Bulls right now. And if you have a 73-win title season where you're smoking everybody and taking down LeBron during his prime, I think that those conversations would really, really start to heat up, you know? And I even remember I interviewed Magic, Johnson maybe like I don't know 18 months ago and he was popping shots at the Warriors for not being on Showtime's level and at the time it was a pretty like reckless thing to say because KD hadn't gotten injured yet and it's and he hadn't left yet so it seemed like this could go on for the next you know four or five six years and um in hindsight like I think Magic was right like you know Golden State came up a little bit short so I'm glad you did the title defenses post who else did you have on that list by the way uh the 2000 San Antonio Spurs, which I think is a team that is just completely lost to history. It was right after the the lockout champion Spurs team, uh, Duncan's, I think, second season in the NBA, and he's already a total monster with David Robinson. And in 2000, you know, he he tears his meniscus uh, really late in the season. And Greg Popovich makes the decision to sit him for the playoffs, even though he was technically able to run up and down the court and he wanted to play. And, uh, you know, just going back and looking at some of the quotes from that time and looking at uh, Duncan's minute load and his usage and all that, like he was averaging over 40 minutes a night in the 10 games before he suffered that knee injury late in a meaningless regular season. And which is just like super fascinating to me. And if you play Duncan in that 2000. Uh, postseason, I mean, there's just so many what ifs, like do the Spurs repeat, but also whatever happens to like, do the do the Shaquille O'Neal, Kobe Bryant Lakers get off the ground? That was the first year that they won their first of three. So I just, that was a really, really fascinating uh, scenario to kind of go back and study. And uh, I don't really want to spoil uh, the list because I want everyone to go look at it, but I, I will right now because I, I want the opportunity to trash this team uh the 2000 hold on real quick before you do that um the decision to rest duncan uh, duncan and i think those guys wound up saying that was one of the best long-term decisions that they Mm -hmm. ever made they felt like it extended his career and they're also their championship window and even was still paying dividends by the time they got to 2014 which is so many years later uh, you know, the concern, obviously, the worst case scenario is that you rush him back and it turns into a Brandon Roy thing. And that would have been an utter shame. So I think Popovich was way ahead of his time with that coaching decision. Can I ask you, did you also consider the 2004 Spurs uh, at all? Yeah, almost every Spurs team that <laughs> didn't go back to back was considered. Just because that crazy shot that Fisher hits. Oh, and yeah. And, you know, like, I just feel like that is one of those heartbreak moments where, if he doesn't hit that shot, the Spurs probably win another one, and then maybe they have a two, you know, a repeat or a three-peat on their resume, and I think that kind of holds them back in this dynasty conversation too, right? Because people yeah, might say, sure. well, they never won two in a row. Not going back-to-back, it, it does hamper them a little bit, although they had like 20 years, 20-plus years of excellence. Um, 
Yeah, that Duncan shot where he hits the shot right before Fisher with 0.4 left is incredible. People should go back and watch that shot. It's like off balance. He's a big man. It's absurd. Um, I ultimately chose the 2000 Spurs mostly because I thought they were like just for selfish reasons they were more interesting to write about. No, but your 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 case was excellent. I, I'm glad that you you highlighted them. I think that the 2004 might get more attention, but the the regret factor that you're describing uh, makes a lot of sense. Okay, spoil the rest of your list for us. Make us happy. Okay, so uh, I'll start with the number one team. Uh, it's the 2007 Miami Heat. And this was Dwayne Wade, year four of his career. Uh, Shaquille O'Neal is basically on the way out. He's, he's, he's in severe decline at this point. He's injured. Pat Riley actually took a leave of absence to have, I think, knee surgery or hip surgery in the middle of this season. And this is right after the finals in 2005-2006 where... Uh, Dwayne Wade, you know, uh, for anyone who saw it, uh, I'm sure Dallas Mavericks fans are still not over what happened. Um, you know, he just gets to the free throw line every single time he drives to the basket. And it's uh, going back and rewatching it now. It's just like kind of a travesty. Uh, like, I don't want to take away the title from them, but that was just, it's kind of absurd. I don't think the better team won that year, one could argue. Uh, so for them to then go into 2007 and they had some injuries and you know Wade missed I think 30 plus games Shaq missed half, over half the season but they lose the season opener by like 44 points and they only score 66 points in the game so like from the jump they were just not prepared to defend their title and then they they inevitably get swept in the first round by Kirk Heinrich and Chris Duhon Chicago Bulls so it's like one of the grossest title defenses in NBA history uh, so I had to just shout them did, out. Did you put Go them ahead. on the list because you were mad about the dunk contest in Dwayne Wade? Is that what happened here? This <laughs> this feels personal to me, the way this one went down. Yeah, no, it's, it's uh, yeah, me and Dwayne Wade have a very long history. Um, so that team, I, I they just deserved to be crucified, I think. It's just, it's not... Uh, it was almost like insulting how they approached that following season and they didn't even make any real uh like changes to their roster i mean they were a little bit older and they had uh some aging guys and aging veterans on the championship team but they brought everybody back and it was kind of a disgrace um so i mean the 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 i, I won't go through the entire list here cuz i want to talk more about the teams that are uh, were actually eligible for mike's exercise but the 2012 Dallas Mavericks are such a what if team. And for those who do not know, I'm sure everybody does, but you know, they had, they win the title in 2011. They have six free agents, including Tyson Chandler. Uh, Mark Cuban famously decides not to re-sign Tyson Chandler because of the lockout and a lot of financial uncertainty going forward. He wanted to be as, as flexible on the books as possible and he thought that there would be an opportunity go ahead did he just overthink that one was that a classic case of a guy trying to outsmart himself i mean yeah (laughs) for sure i mean it's it's like he wanted uh the opportunity to sign a, a a max free agent and they never did so i i see where his head was at but like tyson chandler was not 35 years old at the time. I mean, he won Defensive Player of the Year that very next season with the New York Knicks. So he was still very good. He was a very critical player 
um, particularly in that era where verticality was was everything. Uh, if I mean, NBA basketball has changed so much since 2012. But back then, if you had a big who could jump straight up in the air and protect the basket, it was a huge advantage. And he was critical. So it's just kind of a bummer for them to uh, to not have him when they were trying to defend their championship. Yeah, and like he wasn't even. Um... You know, he wasn't even 30 yet. I think that a lot of times NBA players get mad at us analysts where if a guy is like, you know, about to turn 30 or be over 30, like we start to talk about them differently or write them off or start predicting decline or whatever else. I mean, he was kind of at the peak of his powers, right? I think the the following year or maybe two years later, he made the all-star team uh, for the first time in his career as a member of the Knicks. There's still definitely some good basketball left in him. I think it was one of those things where, you know, the front office is probably thinking, well, we want to pay for future production, not past production. We don't want to overpay just because he helped us win a title. That's where where I think they got into the overthinking thing where it's like, no, you really need a, you know, a linchpin center to protect Dirk here. And the whole thing is going to be a lot easier. And if you don't have that guy, uh, you're going to feel it immediately. I remember that being one of those decisions that was just questioned widely by the internet at the time mm-hmm. and it just like got proven true over and over and over right yeah i mean even like you go back to uh like the closest they came i guess you could say to getting a star in free agency they got meetings with a bunch of really notable players but the the whole deandre jordan fiasco was just like that was kind of the the cherry on top the insult to injury um a few years later uh but ben why don't we can we can we go through now and just kind of talk about some teams this is such like a it's such a wide-ranging conversation and well for sure i have a i have okay. one for you here because there's a flame out list that you guys put together i guess mike mm-hmm. put together and number two on the flame out list was the 2019 milwaukee bucks and he's saying basically number two biggest flame out all time of course people remember they were flying through the playoffs up to zero in the eastern conference finals uh, against the Toronto mm-hmm. Raptors before dropping four straight, including an overtime game. Is this recency bias, Michael, or am I not um, properly understanding what a meltdown that was from <laughs> Milwaukee? Because number two all-time seems really, really high. But, of course, the stakes are there because if Giannis doesn't get over the hump, potentially they use uh, lose Giannis in the future. They might not have a chance to kind of prove things here. Uh, if the season doesn't get back on track, I mean – Am I underestimating how badly the Bucks choked last year? I think a lot of people uh, underestimate how badly the Bucks choked last year. I mean, they were a heavy head. No one was picking the Raptors to win that series, and they go up. They go up two zero uh, in Game Three. They have an opportunity. Chris Middleton misses a three with like a pretty good look at a three in transition with like 10 seconds left or maybe a little bit under that, maybe a little bit over that, um, bricks it, and then they go into overtime and kind of the rest is history. The Raptors win that game and then win four straight. Uh, so I think that that's, uh, like that's kind of a, that's a colossal collapse in my opinion. I mean, that you have the lead, you're the favorite, you won 60 games that season, you have this high point differential, you have the MVP on your team. Like, come on, man. Like, I think that it, it is it is super recent, so it's in everybody's head. It's fresh in everybody's mind. But I think even, like, 10 years from now, especially if Giannis does not ever win a championship in Milwaukee, people will go back to that series and they will frown pretty dramatically at it. 
No, you're making a lot of really, really good points. I can tell because I'm almost crying <laughs> at the memory of this. Um, did you have anybody else from that list that jumps out to you? I mean, just to run through a couple of teams real quick, 91 Blazers, who I yep. mentioned, uh, the 2007 Mavericks, uh, who obviously lost to the We Believe Warriors, um, the 93 Knicks, who got punked yet again by Michael Jordan, the 2000 Portland Trailblazers, which I think... I mean, I think a lot of Blazers fans would go to that team just because of the way that fourth quarter melted down. They might say these guys should maybe be number one overall um, when you really mm-hmm. look at it. I mean, given the gigantic comeback, the painful lob. I mean, I know Blazers fans to this day who can't watch that highlight clip of, <laughs> of Kobe lobbing to Shaq. Like, they just can't do it. it. It hurts too much. I think these guys might need to be number one or pretty close. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, that team was awesome. Scotty Pippen. Uh, Rashid Wallace. I just, I'm not even looking at the roster right now. I'm just going off the top of my head, kind of thinking about that series and that team and that era of Blazers basketball, which was really unfortunate. Uh, I think, you know, there's a couple just franchises that really stand out and they had a, a couple really good teams, but, um, you're, you're also able to kind of pinpoint one season that was just particularly heartbreaking and, and they never got over the hump. And for me, it, I do not think this is recency bias. I think this will go down as the most one of the most disappointing uh, eras for any team ever. And that's, of course, the uh, Oklahoma City Thunder, which I think we need to talk about for two seconds at least. Uh, in 2016 in particular, I think that was the year where they were the closest, despite not getting to the finals uh, that season. That team was just incredible. And when they unlocked their length and when they started switching and when they, you know, Billy Donovan realized that he could go small and just have this incredible advantage uh, against a heavy favorite in, in Golden State, I just, man, like, it, it still hurts to thinking back to that series and thinking back to what happened and thinking back to Kevin Durant's decision to leave. I mean, we, we were robbed of some really great high-octane basketball if he stayed and stuck around. Have you seen those memes going around, Michael, that's like me on day one of quarantine, (laughs) me on day 30 of quarantine, right? And like the pictures are like obviously different. Like the first picture is just nice and cute and the second picture looks like, you know, somebody's been, (laughs) been through a hurricane or whatever. I actually had a very similar meme that I inadvertently created during that series because do you remember how much trash Russell Westbrook was talking when they were up 3-1 he came on the post-game podium with a huge smile you know feeling themselves thinking that they had that series all locked up they you know nobody could believe how badly they smacked uh Golden State back to back at home in the middle of that blowout wins too right he had this huge smile and then after game seven he comes on and he can barely look at the cameras he's so (laughs) frustrated and so angry and so i tweeted out a side-by-side image of like russell westbrook after game four russell westbrook after game seven and it went like insanely viral i'm sure people can go out there and find that tweet um i will always remember that from that series that's a really really memorable series and such a pain painful uh collapse that you're describing i think it gets maybe overlooked or undersold by history for two reasons. First of all, Golden State's 3-1 collapse in the finals just immediately overshadowed it, right? So obviously there's already a higher stakes thing to compare it to. But second, it's hard to call it a collapse when Klay Thompson is hitting 75 three-pointers in one game. It's just like if this guy is breaking basketball and he's just a video game character now and there's nothing you can do about it, 
are you really collapsing or is it just like not in your hands anymore? And that series was kind of like the peak of the Warriors feeling completely unfair and completely like unbeatable. And I guess there were some other moments in 2017 where they just, you know, roasted everybody with Durant. But, uh, you know, I just remember at certain times it was like, these guys are invincible. They've like put on, you know, they've, they've hit the star in Mario Brothers and now their body is like <laughs> orange and red and there's nothing that can kill them, yeah. right? Um, but, you know, a fascinating collapse uh, in so many different ways you know, for that organization. And they really haven't recovered, uh, you know, since. I mean, they haven't won a playoff series since. And, you know, we'll see how long it could take them to, to get back to that level. Yeah, really sad. Really sad for the Thunder, even though they have uh, 7,000 draft picks over the next two years. So we'll see how that turns out. Um, keeping it really recent, and I think this is also an all-time team, and we'll see what happens, and maybe we'll never know what could have been. But I, I really appreciate the 2018 Rockets being on this list. And I I, I just love that team. I love... I love like the the ethos of it, how Daryl Morey, during a time when everyone in the NBA was afraid of the Golden State Warriors and afraid of pushing all the chips in and going for it, that they they did just that and they built basically as good of a team as possible to to dethrone Golden State and they came so, so close. And I'm sure rewatching that fourth quarter where they miss I guess they missed 27 threes in the entire game, but particularly the second half. I mean, they had double-digit lead in Game 7 and Game 6 of that series. Uh, it's it's just kind of like heartbreaking, and it completely alters so many different narratives and so many different careers and so many different perceptions um, of the people involved. Well, and Michael, let's not even forget, it alters your whole life too because you've been on these Houston Rockets for years and years, and that was their closest moment. Can I ask you, <laughs> will you take us through... Uh, where you were watching that fourth quarter that you're describing or the the 20 plus missed three pointers in a row what was going on through your mind were you talking to anyone else were you upset were you kind of like uh discombobulated i mean what just paint the picture for us as listeners. no i mean i'm pretty sure it was the same day it was within the same 24 hours i think it was the same day as the the celtics Cavs game seven if i'm not mistaken and so that oh wait who who won that one (laughs) i will i I will say uh 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 mike included the 2018 celtics uh on his list of his 64 teams and uh uh i i had no part in that i did not suggest he do that um so i just want to be clear uh for yeah, that seems like a little bit of a reach, but the Celtics did lose that <laughs> game. Uh, what, tell us, tell, tell us about your Rockets reaction, though. I don't want to get sidetracked into Celtics. No, basketball. it was it was just tough. I mean, both those teams just bricked a bunch of threes, and a Celtics Rockets finals would have been awesome. Um, just you know, you, you build this team. You uh, obviously they did not have Chris Paul towards the end of that series, which was very deflating. And granted, we should mention, which is overlooked, that the uh, the Golden State Warriors did not have Andre Iguodala either, which nobody mentioned. So I want to give credit where credit is due. Um, but the Rockets, I mean, they were just built so perfectly, and for them to kind of be done in by their own revolutionary strategy is it's ironic and it's 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 heartbreaking it's very greek tragic right i mean that's it's like straight out of the 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 ancient texts uh, the way that one went down i was at that game trying to process it in real time and at some point i went from disbelief 
to giddiness. I don't know if you ever get this, Michael, but like when you're there in person witnessing history, you just want the history to be bigger and crazier, Mm -hmm. right? So once they got to around like 18 straight missed three-pointers, I was like, oh man, like what if they get to 50? Like, <laughs> like, what, like how high can this go, right? So I'm just like sitting there, of course, like kind of tabulating it in a spreadsheet as we're going along. And we're all looking at each other, kind of like double-checking the math, double-checking the game box scores, you know, like the game-by-game data, like our play-by-play data. Are we getting this right? Is this really happening? I mean, it was such a collective feeling of just completely being stunned and you know it was i think in part exhaustion both physically and mentally that was a crazy series like you're mentioning there was injury issues and you know both teams were kind of in a, a rough you know a rough way by the end of it and you know golden state when they won that it was just a matter of relief you know it was a matter of survival it wasn't even like a celebration it was just like oh my god like we're still alive i guess we're going forward now um you know, just a, a crazy, crazy series. No, no question. All right, Michael, I think we've got time for one more team from the title of this series by uh, SB Nation that you want to highlight. So who are they? I mean, I, I guess it would make sense to kind of bring it back and, and wrap this up by just talking about the some of the teams that were downed by Michael Jordan. I mean, it's, it, you know, there, <laughs> there's so many. Well, look, you need a 10-part series for that. I know, <laughs> I know. We'll go through them very, very quickly. But just like, you know, you have those Pacers teams, and particularly 98, which I think was maybe the best team of that bunch in that era with Reggie Miller and Mark Jackson and Rick Smiths, and those were really fun teams. That, that I think that was the only team that pushed Michael Jordan's Bulls to seven games. Is that correct? That yeah. sounds correct. I would have to double check if they had another Eastern Conference Finals, but obviously they never went longer than six right. in the finals. Uh, so that team was was great, and it's kind of uh, it's tough that they never won a ring, and Reggie Miller never won a ring. Um, I mean, you have those Knicks teams that you mentioned, uh, probably the most tortured uh, teams looking back uh, there's a lot of comp- competition for this but those Knicks teams uh that never got over the hump that were uh really iconic for just their physicality and uh everything that they stood for with you know Charles Oakley and Anthony Mason and Patrick Ewing and that was tough um yeah I think it's a two-team race for that that title of like who was the most tortured by Jordan because I think the Bulls were 5-0 and with Jordan against the Knicks and the Knicks did get one series off him when uh, he was playing baseball um, but you know that's kind of small consolation because they weren't able to cash it in as a title um, but then you also have the Utah yep, Jazz yep, where yep, like yep, yep. I mean those two finals were just like gutting losses right and Jordan's doing it with the flu Jordan's doing it with the last shot breaking your heart when you had a three-point lead in the last minute of the game um, it wasn't just that they lost to Jordan. It was like the manner in which they did it. All their guys were vets. They were all on the same page. It was clearly the peak of their careers. And to come up just short twice in a row and then never really get back there um, just because, you know, the eras changed and the new stars came in and everything else. Um, yeah, I I might give Utah a slight. I mean, it's really close. Do you have a favorite there between Utah and, and New York yeah, in terms I- of? <laughs> who endured more Jordan Oh, it's got to be Utah. I mean, I, I capped this. Uh, I was going to cap it off with Utah. You you hit it right on the head. Uh, they were number one in Mike's not good enough division bracket, the 97 Utah Jazz. Uh, it's 
it, I mean, I, I need a thesaurus to kind of look up heartbreaking and just continuously use it, but that's exactly w- what it was. And uh, to get so close, uh, like to get to the finals repeatedly as they did and just come up short against the same guy, is, it's like, it's such a nightmare. It's soul-shattering, Michael. Soul-shattering. Well, on that light note, uh, I think we are going to call it for today. Guys, email us in, openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com. We will return to kind of more regularly scheduled programming by taking your questions in detail uh, You know, early next week. We will be able to discuss, of course, the first two episodes that everyone will have watched. So if you're watching that Last Dance documentary and you have any takes, fire them our way, openfloormail at gmail.com. We're also on Apple Podcasts. You can find our page by searching for Open Floor. That's two words. When you get there, scroll down. It will say rate and review. Tap five stars. It's just that easy to help us spread the word. Michael is on Instagram and Twitter at Michael Victor Pina. I'm on Instagram at Ben.Golliver. On Twitter at Ben Golliver. Hey, Michael, until next week, I'll talk. Thanks, Ben. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret, like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Awards Watch says Liam Neeson is at his best. Don't miss In the Land of Saints and Sinners. Having left his dark past behind, retired hitman Finbar Murphy, played by Neeson, leads a quiet life in a remote coastal Irish town. But when a menacing crew of terrorists arrive, Finbar is drawn into a vicious game of cat and mouse, forcing him to choose between exposing his secret identity or defending his friends and neighbors. In the Land of Saints and Sinners, from Samuel Goldwyn Films and Sony Pictures Home Entertainment. Watch it now on digital. Rated R. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details.